Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and this week I'm joined by Stuart Robson, George Calkin, and our qualified referee, Alison Rudd. Today we'll be discussing Sunderland's awesome display at Stamford Bridge and the draw between Aston Villa and Manchester United. I'll also be asking our panel, including George Culkin, who was a, a young, wealthy footballer at one time, whether we judge our successful stars a little too harshly. One place to start, and I guess it's the uh, shock upset of, of the weekend. Um, Chelsea going down 3-0 to Sunderland. I, I think, you know, going down, it, it really was, uh, um, it was I think, as one-sided a game as, as you're likely to see. And, and Peter Cech, who I've been critical of, actually made some very good saves or the margin could have probably been even bigger. Um, I think it's only fair, since we have George Culkin on the show, to uh, start with the man in the Northeast. And, I, George, I know you don't actually live in Sunderland, but you are pretty pretty close by. Um, are, are there birds chirping, and, and, and does the Northeast seem like a brighter place this morning? You have to say, looking at the league table this morning, it looks uh, it looks a very nice place and um, fairly unusual as well that you can um, you can see so many positives for, for both clubs at the moment up here. But um, remarkable story for Sunderland. They were absolutely brilliant yesterday, as you say, and to think that it's come. You know, uh, two weeks after they got hammered at Newcastle is a fairly is a fairly remarkable turnaround for Steve Bruce to have, you know, his worst worst day in management so closely followed by his best. But they were, I mean, they were absolutely brilliant at Chelsea, and that that performance at Newcastle aside, um, it's only one defeat in the last ten games, and they've got a fantastic record against the against the top four. Um, I, I have to come out and, and, and eat some humble pie for now, although I kind of stand by what I said, but I, I thought 13 million in change for Asamoah Jean was, was a little too much, given that you know two years ago, I think he scored one goal in, in 16 games for, 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 for Ren, but obviously he's made, uh, um, he was very good, he made the difference, he um, as I heard from some fool on television he's really enjoying his finishing, which seems absolutely demented to me but um, what happens when Darren Bent comes back? Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe that Bent and John have actually started um, a match together this season, have they? They haven't, no. But um, Bruce had gone on record in the week after the Newcastle game that he was going to play them both together. So Bent's injury uh, didn't didn't allow him didn't allow him to do that. So I mean, I think the the thinking for now is having played four five one for for much this season and looked solid. He was going to he was going to switch back to two up front and a word for Danny Welbeck as well who's been playing uh, wide left for most of the season in that five man midfield he went up front at Chelsea and I thought was was absolutely was absolutely brilliant um Guillaume scored four goals in the last in the last three games um, it's been a source of, sort of some debate amongst Sunderland fans how he's not been able to get into the team after paying all that money uh, for him in the summer. But he certainly, he, the way he's playing at the moment, he certainly looks he certainly looks like a, a, a decent piece of business. Stuart, a Samoan bent, uh, a viable partnership? Well, I'm not sure. that I think they've got the same attributes. I'm not sure they're going to link up. Neither of them are combination players. When I saw Sunderland earlier in the season, I thought Bent had a great understanding with Mel Bronk, who I thought was back to his best football. Mel Bronk playing just behind the main striker with Welbeck on one side and uh, Al Mohamedi on the other side. I thought it worked really well for them in many of the games that I saw. If you play Jean up front, one of those players is going to have to be left out. And at the moment, it looks as though it could be Mel Bronk. Because, but I thought he was the key to what Sunderland were doing earlier in the season. Um. 
Allison, I, I sometimes we get really cool. We see really neat things that even uh, even somebody who doesn't like football can uh, um, can relate to. Who are those people? I, I wouldn't know. But one of the one of those things that unfortunately I didn't write into the script, although I should have, is <laughs> Johan Elmander's goal. I don't want Bolton fans to get upset, but yes, we should all celebrate Johan Elmander. But back to this game. The other ridiculous PlayStation type goal was Nedim Onuoa's goal, which. I mean, he's a bit of an unusual guy. He's he's supposedly very very bright. He's he's studied. Um, he's got all sorts of A levels and, and and doodads like that. And he also used to be a sprinter. I'm told when he was 14 years old and so on. But to conjure up a goal like that, that that, that, that was unbelievable. Yeah, someone who didn't see it said, "Well, I heard I heard it was a great goal. What was it like?" And the first thing that popped into my head was, "I said, oh, it's, it was like um, John Barnes at the Maracana. It, it was that sort of, you know, you sort of have to blink a couple of times. Think, did I really, did I really see that? Because this is someone who, you know." It's one thing to say a team works very hard, as Sunderland did, and earn the right to get a good result, and, and they never let up. But you sort of the the, the the extra bit, the bit that is really unbelievable, is that they were they felt so confident, they were able to express themselves to such a degree that they would score a deliriously gorgeous sachet in and out goal. And this is from a player that uh, Manchester City, when he was playing at right back or centre half, and when I've seen him play for England under 21s, I've always been critical because I thought he couldn't play out from the back. I didn't think he had the technical qualities. But on that occasion, it was a magnificent piece of skill, wasn't it? Um, George, you see this guy up close. Um, I mean, I, I, I watched uh, uh, some of this on uh, on German television, and somebody said it's um, it was like Messi. Um, of course, Leo Messi could probably fit in uh, Nedim Onuoa's butt cheek. Um, <laughs> Did you see this coming? Is 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 this a season that Onwawa establishes himself as a, 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 a as a regular for Sunderland and maybe a guy who can kick on with England as well? Well, he's he's been he's been you know regular with them so far this season has been and has been very very good. I would be. I would be lying to the nth degree if I said there's been any, any sign of that kind of goal or <laughs> anything remotely similar uh, to that. No, I mean he's he's uh, he's proved very capable at the back. You know, the Sunderland's back four has been has been sort of one of their big the big improvements this season. But um, no, I've not seen anything like that. On, on the subject of Sunderland goals, I would urge people to go on YouTube and put in. Budawine Zenden dance just to see his version of the Asamoah Gian uh, chicken dance after <laughs> after his goal because if 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 there's a definition of dad dance uh, on on video anywhere that's that's it it's a truly heroic yeah. performance from him yeah I, I I saw that I saw that on, on, on the highlights package it looks like it looks like Jean does his thing and then Bolo comes up and starts doing it for like a, for for about for a few seconds and I think must realize that he looks absolutely ridiculous and and and, and stops but. Bolo Zenden, of course, um, one of the one of the good guys in football, and I believe a black belt in uh, in judo as well, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, I'm not going to have a I'm not going to have a go at him about his dance in that case. But uh, in in future, he should stick to holding his pine glass on the side of the dance floor as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but to be fair, nobody looks good doing the chicken dance, whether they're 16 or 34. So. You think anybody looks good? No, doing nobody it? does. So, what about George Clooney? Nobody Denzel? looks good doing the chicken dance. Right. Okay, right, just checking. All right, um, we probably should talk about the uh, double winning champions uh, as well. Um, they were absolutely uh, uh, turgid. Now, if you want to 
talk about all the injuries they had for the record. You know, you've got Alex out, you've got John Terry out, you've got um, Michael Essien, who of course is the whole freaking show, out. <laughs> you've got Frank Lampard out, you've got Yossi Benayoun out, you've got Didier Drogba with malaria. Um, but you still expect more of a performance, right, sir? Absolutely. And the problem is, I've been saying for a few weeks, I think they've been quite complacent. They've won games without playing particularly well. And they think, well, if we, if we get in trouble, we'll just raise the tempo again. We'll go, take it up to the next notch. The problem is, they can't now take it up to the next notch. And I don't think, when those all those players are out and the players that have come in, I think they're all good individual players. But I don't think there's any fluency in what they're doing, particularly defensively. Some of the defensive decisions they made yesterday and the, and the positions they took up was really, really poor. You know, And it, and it, it made it much easier for Sunderland to break them down. Yes, Sunderland played well, but they but the, the, some of the, the, the counter-attacking was so easy because the decisions that Ferreira made, the decisions that Ivanovic made and the midfield players, there was no real protection in midfield with, with Zerkov and, and uh, Morales and, and, and Mikel didn't look up as though he was up to full pace. It was a real problem for Chelsea at the moment and they've got to get back on the training field and start working at the defensive side of the game as well. Yeah, I mean, half their spine was missing and I think that obviously would affect any any clubs, but I think you have to point your finger at the manager and say, well, you, you have a problem, players are injured, what do you do about it, who do you draft in? And to have Ivanovic and Ferreira at centre-back was stupid. I, I don't I don't understand the logic of that. They look I mean and they looked uncomfortable. They looked uncomfortable from from the word go well, and they I, became increasingly uncomfortable as the afternoon wore on. But Ivanovic, that's that's it. why would you have four I think it's happened before you the managers have put four fullbacks along the back. Never work never works. Well, he, he, because because he's seen what week on week in that between them they've got pace and they look good and he likes his fullbacks because they're whatever they're, they're in form they're looking fit but it's a very different position being a centre half he's got Bruma hasn't he why doesn't he play it well because Bruma's coming off an injury in the last, in the last 90 minutes but he's so a centre half like, and has all that, that goes with yeah, that positional sense etc he's in, he, can't, he doesn't last 90 minutes I mean I, I agree that the Paulo Ferreira um, was obviously a, a, a bad decision Ivanovic I have no problem with in fact I think he's, he's best a position. Player, yeah. I think he's a central defender Ivanovic actually more than a right mm. back but Paulo Ferreira clearly when you Factor in his age, you know, he's a reserve right back, third choice right back. Wimpersing was fit. Um, it was a bit of a disaster. But then it, I asked myself, what could he have done in terms of, you know, who else could he have played there? And and, and short of putting Obi Mikel there and maybe starting well, McEnroe. I'm not in sure he could have put too many other players well, there. But what he needed to do, having known that this was going to be his side, they needed to work as a back four throughout the week. You know, and the, and the, and, the, and the midfield players working alongside them. You need to have some sort of strategy when you're going into games defensively. Yeah. And it didn't look to me. I think he felt, well, these players would be good enough to beat Sunderland. You know, we, we do the things we normally do, and they hadn't worked hard enough in training with that back four because they were all over the place at times. And he took a gamble that Terry would be fit. Terry had had a nerve problem all week and it, it went whatever the nerve problem is it, it went it, on the Saturday so th that's probably why they mm. didn't work on it but I mean again that th there was an indication that there might be a need to reshuffle his defence and I think you're, you're right Stuart he, he didn't take it seriously enough no. Anybody want to suggest that Roy, uh, Ray Wilkins uh, departure was uh, to blame for this turgid performance? Well, Ray Wilkins is a lovely chap, but I don't think he had any influence whatsoever on the training field and around the uh, around what the tactics were. I think he was just a, a nice guy who who sort of was the link between the players and the manager. But uh, do you need people like that uh, and get paid four hundred thousand pound a year? Lovely bloke, but uh, I'm not sure what sort of job he did at Chelsea. And Wilkins was there when they lost at Anfield, wasn't he? So mm. it's not like suddenly they lose for the first time ever. Um, George, uh, uh, all those talk about Chelsea's problems and Ancelotti's mistake. Does it? Um does it take some of the gloss away from, from Sunderland to you? 
No, I mean, I think I think that's to be expected. You know, they're they're, they're playing at the home of the champions, aren't they? As you said, and um, it will their result there will have to be put into that sort of prism but um, I, I don't think anybody would, would deny that they didn't deserve not just to win but to, to win to win very comfortably and you know I hope that people do sort of take a step back and look at Sunderland's record this season against um, against the, t- the top sides and they'll see that it's not you know it's not a one-off they've um, they've had um, probably until Craig Gordon came back into the team in goal they've had the youngest one to eleven in the uh, in the Premier League this season, so it's not it's a, it's it's an interesting story what's what's happening there, and you know Steve Bruce has done very well to turn it around, particularly after that Newcastle game. Moving on to um, Villa Park, I talk about we, we've seen this before. You know, Villa two goal lead, United come storming back. But I want to start with Barry Bannon and Mark Albrighton. Now, we discussed Mark Albrighton earlier this season with Alison Rodden, and I have to say, I not recall the exact quote, but Alison said something like, oh, it's one game, I mean, come on. Now, these guys were at the club together with Kieran Clark and Nathan Dolfonso, who I believe didn't start a single league game under Martin O'Neill. Um, now, all of a sudden, they're playing. Now, is this a case of Martin O'Neill not trusting young players um, or is it a case of Julier's genius in identifying that hey these kids can actually play a little Stuart well I've seen these players play many times for Aston Villa Reserves and you'll ask me what I'm doing at Aston Villa Reserves so many times but I, I do go and watch a lot of reserve team football for some of the work I do and these have always been Aston Villa have been at the top of the reserve team league for many years now and, and Kevin McDonald's done a fantastic job and this was one of the arguments that the board and, and, and the people underneath Martino had with Martin O'Neill he wasn't giving the youngsters the chance yes they've been brought in because there's been a lot more injuries but Bannon has been a good player in that central midfielder he's a great passer of the ball I don't think he's the most athletic of players but he certainly is going to open up defences as he showed the other day and Albrighton was was Villa's best reserve team player for two or three years and he deserved his chance and when when he has come into the side he's played very well Delfonso I'm not quite so sure about him I've seen him play well and I've also seen him be a little bit um, lazy at times and I'm not sure he's going to fulfil his potential and I'm not sure about Kieran Clark but certainly Bannon Albrighton are stars of the future Alison you want to revisit your opinion of Mike Albrighton? I Whatever I said was probably eminently sensible at the time. You can't judge a player on his one appearance in the Premier League. And if he's gone on and he's proving that he can cope, then that's fantastic. But it's a combination, isn't it? A combination of that Julio's been forced to look at the academy players because he's got injuries. Um, if O'Neill had had his hand forced, maybe he would have done the same thing. I'd, also, they're a year older now, and if they're coming through together... And you can, I mean, in a way, if there's more of them going into the first team at the same time, it helps because they have an understanding. And if they've been playing really well, as Stuart says, in the academy together, then, you know, that's what it's supposed to be. This shouldn't, Aston, this shouldn't Aston be Villa, a big yeah. surprise. This Aston be a Villa surprise. spend an absolute fortune on their academy, you know, and that's what I think Randy Learn has been saying. We spend a fortune on this academy. We are producing players, and so Kevin McDonald tells us from the from the youth team and the reserves, but they're never being played in the first team under Martin O'Neill. Is this the right way to? Yet you're buying players that you don't play either. You know, you think of Shorey and some of the other players that he bought. 
Bay that he never played and I think that was the criticism of Martin O'Neill and that's why you're seeing some of the younger players coming through because I think it's, a, it's something from, that's coming from the top and the, and the people below uh, Julio have said these players are good enough put them in the side um, I mean there's, 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 I was just going to say there's, you know, I don't think people would have predicted that Stephen Island would, would start the season so poorly I mean that's been one thing at Villa and that's, that's given people a chance just to briefly return to Sunderland you look at how Jordan Henderson emerged, emerged last season I don't think anybody expected I mean Steve Bruce included expected him to uh, to, to come in and sort of and take it by the scuff of the neck the way the way he did and now he's in the England squad there's, there's, there's sometimes you know a mix of circumstances and you don't really find out about these players until you until you put well, them well, in well you're quite right there because that level. Cause I, I was speaking to Liam Brady the Arsenal Academy director and he's sometimes a little bit miffed with Arsene Wenger because you give a young player a chance and he, he, he make, has two bad games and you never see him again you know the, the first team coach he's not good enough you know we, we, we'll have to go and buy somebody but you go and buy somebody you might give them 10-15 chances because now you've got them at the club yeah. you, you have to play them so youngsters have got to almost come in and be brilliant otherwise they never get another chance well it's probably also because when you buy somebody you've invested mm. money and effort into it and certainly the, the first team coach has done so whereas if it's a kid or if it's a guy from the reserves you know you can send him back to the reserves and, and, and whatever else. And what, what I do find interesting um, is, is this ability to, to, to turn to the kids. Is that also maybe a sign of if a manager plays the kids, he's not going to get criticized. He's not going to get sticks from the fans, is he? Not so much. I mean, the, the fans at Aston Villa are desperate for young kids to come through. That was their criticism of Martin O'Neill. And I saw the very first game of the season at West Ham and Kevin McDonald was put in charge. He put two or three of the kids in, or Brighton being one of them. And there was a diff- different atmosphere towards the players. They want the young players to do well. You can't play a whole load of them, you know, because in the end, you're only going to produce one or two really good players from your academy every couple of years. But all Brighton and Bannon are the ones. But it is worth bringing them through in batches, isn't mm. it? Oh. Because at um, Fulham the other week, it, Bannon played one of those sort of telepathic crossfield passes, passes to yeah. Albright and you could tell they'd played you know they, these mm. weren't two people just come in <gasps> and it's the premiership oh isn't it exciting they've been playing together for years and you could tell so it does, the, it, does, it does make sense to have batches <coughs> of academy boys coming mm. through together. so I just have to correct you there just getting word through here uh, um, on, my, on my cans it's not the premiership it's the Barclays Premier League, and I invite you all to <laughs> use the correct terminology. Premiership was just a marketing tool back when it was a calling premiership. It's the Barclays Premier League, BPL, if you like. But lyrically, it just sounds nice. Isn't it? Um, George, I, I, I thought Villa created a billion chances. Um, I thought they could have been could have scored three or four goals. What's interesting about United, and I mean we've seen them, you know, make bizarre comebacks. What struck me was at one point he takes off Berbatov and Hernandez in one fell swoop. It's kind of rare that you see sort of uh, a front striking partnership come off at the same time, isn't it? Yes, it's very strange. I mean, I mean, particularly when the two people coming on are Robertson and Macheda. I mean, um, you know, people talking about Hernandez a, a week or so ago, a couple of weeks ago, as the, you know, as the natural heir at Man United, and Berbatov obviously started the season pretty well. Um, we've seen, we've, you know, we've we've seen these comebacks happen before so many times. But sort of again, sort of relating it to, to Chelsea, you have to ask, where, you know, whether Chelsea have had the stuffing knocked out of them even um, by the fact that the teams below them just aren't um, you know just aren't pushing them I wonder if that's part, part of why Chelsea sort of have taken their eye off the ball a little bit because although Man United haven't lost these, this season they've drawn a heck of a lot of games you know Arsenal lost at home to to Newcastle uh, Man City have you know are certainly in a bit of a rut I just wonder whether there's that the teams at the top are sort of being pushed enough 
that's an interesting point because of course this is the weekend where you know of the top four I, um, as we said uh, Arsenal the only one to win and it, is this the worst United side right now in terms of the players who are actually available that in sort of the last four or five years I would say yes. Looking at the looking at the way they've been playing this season, although they haven't lost, I've been to many of their games. And on Saturday, it was lacklustre. The central midfield partnership of Fletcher—you expect to bomb forward and make things happen—and Carrick didn't really pass the ball particularly well. Uh, Park on one side, you know, he's not not dynamic enough to go past people. Nani had a terrible game. I thought. And, and by the way, on, on Nani, Nani's not fit. No, he can't. He's clearly, be. He's, he's clearly carrying it. This is what really concerns me about Fergie: is Nani's clearly not fit, hmm. and yet he still plays him, which. Which he generally doesn't do. He generally doesn't play players unless you know it's a Champions League because he hasn't got too many other people. But, but he's got nobody. Well, now Obertan has started to come to the fore. When Obertan came on, I couldn't believe that he went and played behind Makeda. That was the strange thing that he. he Berbatov wasn't playing particularly. Well. I think Alex Ferguson didn't think he could get back into the game. He took those two players off almost as if to say, "You haven't been playing well enough. I'm going to sh- I'm going to make an example of you. I'm going to take you off because I could see Ferguson on the side of it. He was absolutely furious with what was going on, on the pitch, and he put these two youngsters on. Go on, you go and see what you can do and Makeda played well of, of course but Obertan in the role behind the main street he's, he's a right winger I've seen him play for, for Bordeaux I've seen him play for Manchester United Reserves I've seen him play for the French under 21s always on a right as a right sided midfield he went and played in the in the role just behind Makeda and he picked up the ball he showed good pace he went past but he could have actually won the game for Manchester United when he went past the defender I think it was Collins to get the shot in at the end so it was a strange decision that he made to put them on but it, it worked for him in the end can't we just call it brilliant then what, Sir Alex? Is yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> George, uh, you, you, you're impartial here. Is, is it Sir Alex is brilliant uh, in, uh, in orchestrating this, whole, this comeback, or um, was he actually not that brilliant? He's actually got a, a bit of a problem with his team, and he's maybe a bit lucky that, uh, that Makeda and, uh, and Overtown were able to turn it around. Well, I think it's a bit of you know, I think it's a bit of both. They, they still have that sort of aura uh, when it comes towards the last last five minutes of a game that you know there's still a feeling that they'll that they'll sort of pull something out of it. But I think increasingly it feels a bit a bit more like desperation than uh, you know than anything else. If you look at if you look at Manu's bench at the at the weekend. Um, you know, it just looks desperately, desperately weak, and I think there's a, you know, I think there was a strong feeling that they're ready for a sort of big refresh in the, in the summer. I, I think they, I think they have to be. Um, one, one other point, uh, a refereeing point. So we turn to our qualified referee here, um, Ashley Young, who, who by the way, I, I've been really impressed with uh, uh, this season. Um, they score the goal. He goes to celebrate with the fans. And he gets booked. Nemanja Vidic goes and does it, and he doesn't get booked. Now, the explanation which came through on on television is that the um, referee, rather than announcing it in a press conference afterwards, goes and feels the need to go and say it it to the TV company that holds the rights, uh, but that's a whole other issue. Um, He says, well, Vidic was pushed into the crowd. Vidic went to celebrate near the fans, but then he was pushed into the crowd by his teammates, and that's why he he, he wasn't booked. Um, This is all just stupid, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not the referee's fault. I mean, they 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 have to work under these ridiculous parameters about inciting um, problems in the crowd. But I, I I mean, they need to look at it. There's no George. Should we just introduce a bit of fun back in football and allow all this jazz with the shirts coming off and people celebrating with the fans? Would that be yeah, really just a terrible thing? Fancy dress. I mean, let's let's do let's do that as well. Dress down dress down Saturdays. How about that? Play football in jeans. 
<laughs> Why not? I mean, I mean, I don't know. I just, I just think the, 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 the trouble here is that it looks as if there's one rule for Vidic and another rule for, for what, Ashley Young. What they should ban is synchronised uh, celebrations. They should be banned, and and uh, anybody doing that should be sent off, not even booked, just sent synchronized off. Synchronised celebrations celebration. should be sent off. It's pathetic. Now, our debate this week is actually prompted by uh, something George Calkin um, wrote uh, about his time when uh, he was a Newcastle footballer um, in all but actually playing football. Um, George, I, I, I urge everybody to, to go and to go online behind the paywall and uh, and, and, and read George's piece because it's. I, I'll, I'll sum it up, George, and you can uh, um, you can basically correct me if uh, if it's wrong. But um, young George Colkin came of age and, and Newcastle at a time when there was a tremendous openness about the club, and uh, uh, because he was roughly the same age as some of the players, and he started frequenting some of them um, on on a social basis and. Uh, basically was introduced to, uh, to to the world of what it's like to be uh, a footballer uh, in in Newcastle out on the town on on the big market I guess or wherever it is you guys go um, George would you say this is pretty much a, a an accurate reflection yeah no that's 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 a very kind of view but that's about right that's about right yeah and what did you find well that it's a very beguiling experience it's a Sensory overload. Um, uh, it's, I mean, it's sort of, it's difficult to explain. I mean, you have to put it into some context about what Newcastle's like as a city, which you know, we don't have, don't have too much heavy industry anymore. But there's still that tradition of working hard through the week, and then the weekend is all about football and going out and letting off steam. And um, so there is, you know, there is that kind of correlation between socialising and football, and. Uh, if you're a footballer and you go to a club or a bar in town, you walk into that place and you're immediately being stared at by everybody, by by, by everybody there. If the place is empty, it's within five minutes, it's full. Um, people want to buy you drinks. Women want to come and talk to you. Blokes either want to shake your hand or, you know, there's a darker side of it as well. And that's that they want to, you know, to, 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 to challenge you. But... Um, and obviously, this this kind of whole thing is very much in the news at the moment because of because of Andy because of Andy Carroll. But um, if you're a twenty twenty something uh, year old guy, you've got some money in your pocket, and you come from the area. Th- th- I guess th- I mean I wasn't really trying to make sort of any sort of great sort of moral point or sort of any great point at all, except that it must be very difficult to resist that to resist that temptation because I've seen I've seen it at close hand, and it's. Um, you know, and it's a it's a it's a fairly remarkable it's a fairly remarkable experience. Now, Stuart, uh, uh, you, you were a, a young footballer once, mm-hmm. um, but in sort of a different set of circumstances, perhaps because uh, you're in London, where you know even if you're a very famous footballer, there's probably somebody more famous than you in the same bar uh, most of the time. Um, can you relate to the stuff George describes, or was your experience much different? Well, I, I got in Arsenal's first team at seventeen, and, um, and but I lived in in sort of South End at the time, so I didn't go out in London. I went out in South End. But my rule for for most of my career was that I never did anything that would jeopardise my career. So most of the problems that footballers have today are drink related. You know, if you go out for a meal, you don't get don't get a problem. But as soon as you go out to a club and you start getting drunk, that's when all the problems start. I've seen it when I was at West Ham. I did have a year where uh, I used to go out on a Saturday night uh, after games and went out with some of the other footballers. 
and it was always drink that was the problem. Or until they'd had a drink, until they'd got drunk, there was nobody having a go at them. There was nobody. They weren't trying to do the wrong things with different women. It's when drink got inside them. And that's the problem. Why do players want to drink? Because it doesn't do them any good. When they go to training on the Sunday, when they go to training on the Monday, they can't perform at their best. And if you're a professional footballer and you're being paid an absolute fortune, you, for your own benefit, you want to do the best you can every day in training and every day you go onto the field. And that's, the, that's, what, you have to, that's what you have to do, I think. Why, why don't why don't clubs have a zero tolerance policy on alcohol during the season? Well, I I would if I was if I was the manager of a, of a Premier League club, I'd have a, a, a zero tolerance on drink because I think it's the one thing that causes all the problems. And it's so easy to police because you can test very easily mm. whether you've got alcohol in your blood. You can see evidence of drunken behaviour very easily. Mm. What and is presumably the... presumably anyway? I mean, there's so many managers use um, st- really quite quite sophisticated statistics to, to monitor how many minutes on the pitch they're going to give their players and you sometimes see a player hauled off on, on 74 minutes and you think why, why have they done that they were playing really well it's the manager said well I know I knew he had 74 minutes in it because I've been monitoring him for the past five weeks and I know exactly right? well, there are a lot I mean um, Benitez is famous for, for just not looking at the bigger picture just looking at his stats and and so if you know your player that well statistically then alcohol's the one thing something or any impurity anything that mm. the player's been either eating or, or, or snorting or injecting or imbibing you know that must really affect your stats so what how, how you can have all this sophisticated equipment and application to how, how you're going to conduct the you're game exactly and then right. allow <laughs> them to go out on, on a binge mm. on a Saturday night is, is George, ridiculous but, but you, but you, can't, you can't you can't stop people People from from drinking. There's nothing illegal about about alcohol. Um, you can in, you can encourage them to do that, but um, you know, uh, I don't. I, I honestly don't know how you can. Of course you can, because pilot, pilots pilots are not allowed to fly planes if they've had a drink. There are many many careers where in, if, you, if you've had anything, within, you're not allowed anywhere near your job. Within, in football, yeah, within, in football, within, football within, they can tw- say within 24 hours they're not allowed to drink, and you know clubs have the same same policy within 48, 72, football, within football 72 clubs can say you can't matches. you can't. To ride a motorcycle, they say you can't uh, go, go, skiing. On, go and ski, and you can't do these things. I think they should say you can't drink either, because you're actually damaging all the training you're doing. You're damaging it by by having drink. Um, George, uh, you can see how much fun it is to be in the studio here with with Rudd and, and Robson, and then and, and the rest of the moralizing prohibitionists. Um, I, have, a, have a drink, relax. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I I wanted to ask you because uh, um, I mean I I. Was it a slightly similar situation to, 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 to yours in terms of I, I frequented one footballer who was, uh, was a friend of my cousin's, actually, and uh, um, this guy didn't drink. Um, he just stayed up all night and then went to training and then slept all afternoon. Um, and it was just, just the way he was. Um, it seems what, to me... So what, so what was he doing? Well, 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 basically, he would wake up around 10 o'clock at night and, and go out um, and, you know... Do a lot of things, um, and uh, uh, and basically uh, uh, come back and, and go straight to training. And people tried to talk to him, and he was he sometimes fell asleep at odd times, and he liked to sleep, and that's what that's what he did. And, and he said the, the guy really hardly ever drank. So, is it? I mean, is, is is alcohol? Is it really that much about about alcohol, or or, or is it also about being able to get away with things? I think it's, you know, I think it's a bit of, you know, a bit of both. I mean, certainly when I was when I was out with with sort of it was one Newcastle player in particular who was a very good friend of mine. He he was clever enough 
to do it at the right time, um, most of the time, certainly. I mean, you know, he had, he, he was, and he was clever enough to sort of assimilate lessons when, you know, he, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it before games. It would always be if there was a week between matches and then we, you know, have one night out and a blowout and, um, you know, certainly in terms of his career, he didn't suffer. He didn't suffer from that too too much. But, you know, you look at someone like Joey Barton, uh, who, who again has been in the news recently, and you know, I was I was desperately sorry when Newcastle signed him because I thought that after the sort of all the kind of the, the, the problem players they'd had there before, he was the last person they should be signing. However, and obviously subsequently he got into a huge amount of trouble. However, since then. For two years, he hasn't he hasn't drunk. He's he's reached the decision that alcohol affects part of his character, which I think we saw on the pitch the other night when he punched Pedersen. Now on the pitch, he can't do very much about that sort of instant reaction he has, but off it, he certainly can influence it. And the way he's influenced it is by deciding not to not to drink. Now, clearly, what's going on in Andy Carroll's social life at the moment is is feels fairly unsustainable, um, and you would like to think that he'll he'll reach a decision somewhere along the line about either being more careful more clever or just getting himself out of the firing line firing line completely I, to what degree uh, are there issues with um, somebody's uh, somebody's own background I mean beyond what they do sort of as young 20 something young men but I mean in Andy Carroll's case and I should probably be a bit careful here what I say because I've only heard third-hand rumors, and George, I'm sure, can set us straight. But, I mean, this is a situation where, you know, his Range Rover gets... Or was it a Range Rover? His car, anyway, gets torched. Yeah. I, Where I come from, that means something. I, I mean, sometimes do you have to make allowances for the fact that... Or, you know, you mentioned Joey Barton there. We all know who Joey Barton's brother is and what he's done. Do we have to make allowances for the fact that, you know, you can take two kids, you know, two academy kids at 18 and somebody's got an absolutely sterling you, you, supportive background and the other one, you know, comes from the wrong side of the track? And that's why you've got to, the, the clubs have got to do more about it. If they've got a young player that's a, an exceptional talent, but he comes from a, a, a rougher background or has got problems socially, then the club need to look after him. They need to make sure that that's not happening. I think that's what Sir Alex Ferguson has done over the years. That's what, it, what all the young players that have come through United's Academy say that he knows exactly what they're doing, he keeps them under a tight rein I'm not sure that happens at other clubs because sometimes the managers encourage people to drink I've been at football clubs where the managers encourage you to actually drink, you know, because oh, it's good for you, loosen off and you know it's, it's, it's a, and one of the managers that I played under, he couldn't turn up for pre-season training when we went to a, to a training camp for three days because he was drunk Damn, I was hoping at some point that George would tell us about the time he swam across the River Ware, presumably on a drunken night out, but no such luck, right, George? Um, I was out with a footballer. I'd actually, uh, I'd actually just separated from my wife at the time. He took me out to commiserate with me. Had a boozy meal. Went back to Durham. Carried on drinking. Went to have a look at the cathedral. Uh, at my request, stuffed with miniature bottles of whiskey in my pocket. Decided I wanted to have a look at the river. Fell in. Swam across. Threw my shirt in. Wow. I don't Is want to go any further to that. that. <laughs> it was a very, very, it was a very, very stupid thing to do, and uh, lucky to have got to, got to the other side, both of the story and the river. Goodness, but it, but it's not one of those sort of polluted, yucky English rivers, is it? I mean, relative to others. I have to say, my memory of uh, the actual level of pollution of the river is um, is not is not uh, is not the, what it could be. I do I do rem- no. In fact, I'm not going to tell the end of the story. But but um, uh, no, it's 
certainly, I mean, that really isn't something to be proud of. That was a very, very stupid thing to have done. And, um, uh, I mean, I told it, I suppose, to illustrate the fact that it's not just footballers who can who can get themselves into trouble. Because at the end of that night, my footballer mate went back, uh, watched watched Coronation Street, had a cup of tea, and was fine. And it was it was me that couldn't, um, you know, it was me that couldn't handle the the drink. Yes, clearly, football writers are greater degenerates than footballers. Now, how about some quick hits? I won't even dignify my producer, Chris, calling them off the fence anymore because it's just completely demented and makes no sense. Jay <laughs> Bothroyd has played a grand total of zero minutes of Premier League football since April 22nd, 2006, which is, I believe is as many minutes of Premier League football as you've played, Stuart. <laughs> exactly. Uh, is the Cardiff strikers call up a sign that there isn't much depth among English strikers, or is it a sign that Fabio Capello has uh, now had a screw come loose? I think it's the first one. There is a, a dearth of English strikers that, are, that can be called world-class. You look at all the strikers that are playing up front for England, they could all do the same sort of job. They're all similar style of players. We haven't got any great players at the moment in front areas. That's the problem with English football. We're not developing players as we should be. Wayne Rooney thanks you, by the way. (laughs) Speaking of English strikers, Andy Carroll played 90 minutes in Newcastle's scoreless draw with Fulham on Saturday. Um, But he's 21, he's athletic, he's scored seven league goals already this season. George, uh, what's the percentage chance that Carroll will be England's starting centre forward as a 2014 World Cup and why? I think he surprised everybody with his rapid progress. He scored lots of goals in the Championship last season. I didn't think he would step it up to the level he has done, but he's been he's been brilliant so far. And he offers you know he offers something very very different to uh, to, to most of the other strikers around. He's dominant in the air, but he's also mobile. You look at the way previous England managers and players have thought about someone like. Ed- Sorry, George. So I've got another time. Long. Yes. Oh, okay. But you can have another five seconds. Just give me that percentage chance as well. Uh, 53.2 recurring. 53.2 recurring. Thank you, George. There was plenty of debate about whether Saturday's uh, defeat to Stoke was, in fact, Liverpool's worst performance of the season. Alison, there are plenty of candidates. Where does it rank in the scales of futility? It's pretty high. Um... Probably the worst because because the victory over Chelsea was great, um, great spirit, great organisation, great tactics. Stars came to the fore, and then what happens? A drab draw against Wigan, and then a defeat which had no spirit whatsoever, and the boo started again. So, in terms of the overall context, yes. Gab, here's one for you. Inter fell to AC Milan 1-0 in the Milan derby on Sunday night. Are the knives out for Rafa? Um, no, they're not really. Not from the club. He's not going to get sacked because, uh, you know, they've having spent so much money to go and win the Champions League. Now it's kind of like uh, it's this whole sort of post-coital moment for uh, uh, for the club where they don't. I, I really don't think the owners really care as long as uh, as long as Rafa doesn't embarrass them. Uh, he did have a lot of injuries. AC Milan played very very well. Surprised me. Many people, uh, including me, and um, but there's no question that um, Rafa needs to get his uh, his, his stuff together uh, because uh, <laughs> because well he's had a stinker. And proof that it all comes back down to sex with your post-coital comment. 
No, but you know what I mean. Like, like Inter Milan won the Champions League. They've been chasing this for so many years since 1965. This year, like they're like, oh look, we won. All right, you know, Jose's gone. Let's get Rafa in. We need a new manager. Uh, let's not give him any money to spend. Uh, it'll be fine. And who really cares? And look, we're still champions of Europe. That's the whole attitude at the club this year. Like, like, like they, they really couldn't. You get the sense that they could care less. Uh, <laughs> that should have been ten seconds ago. <laughs> Thank you, George. Thanks for joining me. Now you can go to www.thetimes.co.uk for all your news, your gossip, your analysis. Uh, our web chats, I'm do, I do mine on Mondays. Ollie Case is on Wednesdays. Graham Spears does one during the week as well if you're into Scottish football. And if you like your Ashes, you can also check out our Ashes preview podcast with Mike Atherton and the outstanding Christopher Martin Jenkins. It's on the site and it's on iTunes now. 